Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Open your Bibles to John chapter 7 this morning. John chapter 7. Is it cold in here? There's mixed feelings about that, I know. There always is. Listen, if I'm cold, I used to say, I used to say, if I'm cold, then it's really cold. But after I shed like 60 pounds, not, that's not the case anymore. But it's still, I, I, I do get cold, not as cold as my wife, as quick as my wife, but I do get a little colder. But anyway, John chapter 7, we're continuing the, our study of the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And we come to, the, to what I would consider in the ministry of Jesus as, as it relates to the feast, the pinnacle of Jesus' ministry as it relates to the feast, you know. Uh, Jesus went to the feast. He went to the, you know, the Passover. That was the first, uh, that when he went to the Passover, you know, six months prior to where we're at today, that created a bunch of issues for him is where he um, healed the man on the Sabbath, remember, and, and the, they got all ticked off at him. And then um, he claimed himself to be God in that moment. And so the religious leaders were very upset with him. Fast forward into, you know, the time that we're in now, the Feast of Tabernacles, where they're commemorating um, and honoring the Lord for His provisions for the children of Israel as they moved out of Egypt into the Promised Land and how God just miraculously provided for them. This would be the very last feast that Jesus would stand publicly as a free man and speak to the people. This would be the very last time it's important that you understand that because as you hear what he has to say, the urgency in Jesus' voice, you understand to the emphasis of what he's saying here because this would be the last time that he would address the, the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, proper at a feast time. Remember, there were, there were, this was the most um, attended feast out of all the feasts. It was like a camping trip. They would take branches and they would make tents and they would sleep in those tents for seven days. On the eighth day, where there would be a solemn service, a prayer service. And we'll get into it, but this is, an, this is such a crucial moment in the life of Jesus and what he has to say, I believe, will speak right to you and I. So would you stand with me? And let's, uh, let's read John chapter 7, beginning in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the prophets said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees and said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know that the law is accursed. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. 
Nicodemus, who had gone before him, or gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And Father, we thank you for your word this morning, for the incredible truth that it holds for those who believe in you. We pray, Father, that you would speak to our lives. Each one of us is in a different place today. Yet we know that your word has the capacity to meet each one of us right where we are by your spirit. And we pray that you would help us, Lord, to see what it is that you would want to speak to us personally. Help us to have ears to hear this morning, God, and have hearts to believe in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. The title of my sermon this morning is From Drought to Deluge. From from Drought to Deluge. For we see in this passage a great drought has occurred in every person in the world. There's a dryness. There's a lacking at the very core of a person, which is the soul. You see, in the Garden of Eden, the satisfaction of the soul, the watering of the soul had been taken away. There came a great drought upon mankind. God didn't design us to be in drought, you know. God designed us to to be watered and, and to grow. And yet drought causes us to be withered up and to dry up. The Lord, understanding our lack, understanding our drought, provided a way for that drought to turn into a deluge. A spiritual flooding, if you will, of our souls uh, with living water. Jesus tells us here that not only will this deluge satisfy the thirst of the soul, it will actually flow out of the heart of man into the world around uh, the one whom it occurs. You see, God isn't just about to bring a little bit of rain in our lives. God wants to flood our hearts. And through us, He wants to flood the world with His Spirit, with the living water. God wants to overwhelm our lives to such a point that we can't contain Him and that that living water starts to gush out of us into the world. Anybody um, old enough to remember that, uh, that commercial in the 80s for that tidal wave bubblegum? Anybody remember that? Tidal wave bubblegum. It was a parody off of uh, Indiana Jones. You have Indiana and his, this lady standing alongside of him. He starts and he opens up this, this treasure box. And he, he just found the treasure. And all of a sudden these like Aztec Indians pop in. And they want the gum that's stuck in the side of his belt. They, they want his gum. And they go, oh, you want the tidal wave gum. And so he gives them a piece. And as the chief says, uh, you know, hey, chief. He says, right as he's getting ready to chew the gum, he says, you want to know why they call it tidal wave? And he puts it in his mouth and all of a sudden a gushing waters come rushing through this, the caverns that they're in and just sweep them away. That's what the Lord wants to do in our lives through the Holy Spirit. To gush through. He wants to sweep us up. He wants to cause all those around us to be swept up as well. God just doesn't want to sprinkle on our lives. You understand that? He's a God of abundance. He wants to pour Himself out upon you in power and give you life. If that's what you desire this morning, well, you're in luck because that's what Jesus is offering in our text this morning. I've divided this up into three sections. First, to satisfy, um, or the cry to satisfy the drought, the deluge of the believing, and, and thirdly, the divisions that result. First, let's take a look at the cry to end the drought. 
It says on the last day of the feast in verse 37, the great day Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Uh, we begin with the occasion for the cry. It was the last day of the feast, the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The eighth day it would be, and it would be a solemn day. There would, for seven days, there would be all kinds of celebrations and sacrifices, and people would be overjoyed to be with each other and to be um, you know, remembering what God had done. But on the eighth day, it turned from a spiritual remembering to a physical remembering. They would begin to pray for, for rain for the up-and-coming season. They would be praying, uh, they would turn their eyes to their physical needs rather than their spiritual. That's a common mistake, folks. Where we shift our eyes off the spiritual onto the physical. That is a common mistake for many people because everything in our life has a spiritual aspect to it. It all our lives flow out of the spiritual, you understand? There's spiritual warfare going on. When your life is a wreck and things are going on in your life, oftentimes we turn to the physical. Well, this is what I'm doing physically. No, no. Understand, there's a war going on around you. In the spiritual realm, there's a spiritual aspect to everything that you experience in life. You're being blessed. You're thinking, boy, you know, so you, people often say, oh, you must be doing something right with the guy upstairs because you're being blessed. And in, in, in a sense, it's true because the spiritual blessings flow from the spiritual to the physical, you know, and um, if you're being refined, it's from the spiritual. If you're being corrected, it's from the spiritual. It's the rebuking. It all relates to a spiritual lesson. Everything in life flows out of the spiritual into our physical lives. It was on the eighth day, the great day, that these people were focused upon their, what they would consider their greater need which would be their physical need. And that's often the case. People think that their physical needs are greater than their spiritual needs. But you understand that your physical needs are temporary because this tent, the body that we inhabit today, will be put off one day. It's temporary. Focus on the spiritual. It's the most important. That's what Jesus would tell them. They're focused on their greater need, which is physical. We need rain for the harvest coming up. And Jesus would tell them, you know what? You have a greater need. Water would be the central symbol of this feast. It's pretty interesting. On the first day of the feast, the priest would stand up and he would read Zechariah chapter 14, verse 8, which says, on the, on the day living water shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. But on that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem. And we know what day that was speaking of. And Jesus will tell us what day that was. That was the day that he rose again from the dead. Living water came into the world as a result of Jesus Christ dying and rising again from the dead. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. Interesting um, symbolism that would happen during this, during this feast. Every day for seven days, the priest would take a golden picture and he would and he would walk through the water gate and he would go down to the, to the pool of Siloam and he would dip that into the water. He would bring that water back and there would be a procession there and back. And he would bring that water back in through the water gate to the temple and into where the altar would be. And some would say that he would, some would say he would pour it out upon the altar. Some would say that there would be a rock upon the altar that he would pour that water out upon. Now that water was also mixed with a little bit of wine uh, 
to represent joy. That there is joy in the provisions that God has given. And so they would pour this water. And as they would, as they would walk through this process, there would also be a moment where, where they would proclaim Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, which says, with joy, you will draw, uh, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. It was on the eighth day that all of that would stop. That there would be a solemn people with priests with empty pitchers and the need was so evident. And so perhaps it's in that moment, empty pitcher, people solemn, that Jesus cries out in that moment. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The fact that Jesus is crying out is an indicator of the urgency of his message. He told them just a few days prior, he said, seek me while you can find me. You, you want to look to me now before I'm gone because I'm leaving and where I'm going, you cannot come. He told them. There is an urgency Jesus is trying to express and convey to these people. Notice to whom Jesus is crying out. To the elite. To the religious leaders. No, it's to anyone. It's to anyone. This invitation to have your, soul, your thirst quenched would come to anyone in, that would desire to come to him it was an invitation to all and to any jesus was offering this living water to anyone that means you too today jesus continues to offer that to anyone that would come jesus desires to satisfy your thirst even today what was the purpose of his crying out to help the people recognize the state of their soul you see, they were so focused on the physical. Oh, just like we do, I've got to make a living. Got to put some bread on the table. I'm so focused on the physical that I forget the whole spiritual aspect that is forever, by the way, that is eternal. But I've got to do this today, and we put the blinders on, and we just continue on. That's what they were doing. They had blinders on, and they were focused on their, what, their, what they would consider their most immediate need. Jesus is trying to help them recognize the state of their soul. He's saying your, th your soul is thirsty. It's time that you drink from a well that can truly satisfy. You've been drinking from a well that, that was meant to quench your thirst but not take your thirst away completely. This religious well that you were drinking from, this religious institution that God put in place but had become something that it was never intended to be. And that's happening today, isn't it? People continue to drink from that well and they, they continue to think that if I just perform some religious practices that I'm in right relationship with God. That's not how it works. That wasn't how it worked in the Old Testament even. You know, we read about Isaiah chapter 1 where God was standing before the children of Israel and he's saying, man, your guys' continual um, you know, feasts and your sacrifices and all your songs and all that stuff they make me sick because it's just an outward act. There is no inward heart connected to it. You see, God's not concerned about what happens on the outside. What He's concerned about is what's happening on the inside where nobody else can see but Him. And we're like, oh man, He can see right into your life. You're not fooling anybody when you stand before Him and He sees directly into your soul. The children of Israel were doing what God had told them to do. They were 
They were following the religious, you know, the, the system that God had instituted through Moses, but they had make, made it something that it wasn't intended to be. They began to make it a works-based thing. God put a sacrificial system in place for a moment as a picture that would point to Jesus Christ, you see. It was all supposed to point to Jesus. But they had made it a way of salvation. God never intended for man to draw near to Him through religion. That wasn't the point. It was always supposed to come through relationship. Let me, let me read something from Amos chapter 5 that tells you how God feels about the outward religious act with no inward relational heart. Listen to this. Amos chapter 5, verse 20, 21 through 23. I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight with your solemn assemblies even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings I will not accept them and the peace offerings of your fattened animals I will not look upon them take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps I will not listen whoa that's heavy man why won't God listen? Why won't He accept? Why, why does He want to turn away from these things? Because an outward religion with no inward heart is an abomination to God. That's why. It's an abomination to Him. And yet many are still trying to, trying to drink from that well to satisfy their thirsty soul. Jesus says, you're fooled into thinking that your soul is already satisfied. You think that your greater need is is the here and now, and He's telling them all that would be there that no, that is not the case. Your greater need is an eternal need that only I can satisfy. He's pointing all eyes to Jesus here. Get your eyes on Jesus. He's helping them recognize that they are thirsty still and that they can come to Him. This is a very, listen to this, this is a very broad call to a very narrow path. A very broad call to anyone to a very narrow path to a very specific drink. Jesus says, you've got to come to me. That's narrow. People say Christians are narrow-minded. We have to be. We have to be narrow-minded because Jesus is a narrow way. He's a narrow gate. He called us to a narrow path. And listen to what he says. If anyone would come to me, narrow, to him singularly, no other way to go, and drink. It's a specific drink. It's not to come to me and sit before me and, and to, you know, whatever religious thing you do before the Lord. No, no, you got to drink. You, it's an active, it's a, it's a verb, it's literally an action where you take and you drink of Him. Literally, you make Him your everything. That's what it means. And He's saying, you got to come and drink of me. Jesus is telling us here that it's a very narrow path that leads to a very specific drink. He is shifting the focus from the physical back to the spiritual need, to the thirsty soul. And He's telling them that I'm the only one that can provide that for you. And I'm the only one that can give you the drink that you need. There is no other way to satisfy that. Adam, the first Adam, he stripped away our quench. He took away the drink that we had in the Garden of Eden. But the second Adam, Jesus Christ, He came to bring it back. He came to satisfy the thirsty soul. And yet many people in our day are drinking from all kinds of wells other than Jesus. 
Matt Chandler in his book, Recovering Redemption, would mention four different wells that people drink from. The well of self. Oh, I'm just going to make a better version of the broken me. I'm just going to clean myself up a little bit more and I'm going to try a little harder and I'm going to change the external a little bit you know, and hopefully I can appease God that way. And you can't do it that way. You can't clean yourself up enough to be satisfied to the Lord. You cannot drink from that well. It will continue to allow you to be thirsty. Some people uh, try and drink from the well of others. The well of others through relationship. Maybe, oh, if only I were married, then I would for sure be satisfied. If, if only I had somebody in my life to complete me, they won't complete you. There is no human relationship that will ever complete you. The only relationship that can complete you is a relationship with God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the only relationship. I love my wife. I've told you before. I love her more than I love anybody in this world. But she doesn't complete me and I don't complete her and we know that. She's not looking to me to be her everything because she knows I can't be. That's unfair. I'm not looking to her to be uh, my everything because that's not fair. She can't be. It's impossible. Through Jesus Christ, though, our relationship is amazing. And I love that woman. I'm so grateful. I'm the lucky guy here. Somebody might rival me on that, but I promise you, I'm luckier than you. But listen, I love, I got the mic too, so I have an advantage. <laughs> no, the guy's like, you guys had an opportunity. Go, no, no, I'm luckier, you know. You really blew that, by the way, but no. I'm just kidding. But listen, people drink of the well of self. If only I had, you know, a, a relationship. If only I had a child. If only I had this. If I only had that, that would completely, no, it won't. No, it won't. And you're fooling yourself into thinking that something other than Jesus Christ can satisfy you. All of those things are great in the proper perspective, but they cannot complete you. Keep it in the right order, people. Keep it in the right order. Thirdly, people drink from the well of the world. And that comes in two different ways. Materialism. Oh, if I only have the greatest gadget out, you know, I got to get the iPhone 6 plus S, you know, it's, it's got this 12 megapixel camera and all this stuff, that will satisfy me. That will make me feel like I am the luckiest man in the world. And two days later, you're like, what, what does this thing even do? You know, I, gosh, this doesn't look anything different than the phone I had just had. And, you know, whoa, the camera can do this. Look, and I can click on this. And it, who cares? You're bored with it after a couple days, aren't you? So you're on to the next thing. Oh, I wonder what the next watch is going to be. What's the, you see, it's a well that, it's a, that's an, an, an ending. You can't be satisfied by drinking through materialism. If I just had a boat, if I had a house, if I had this or that, no. None of that will work. What about the well of what's called, Matt Chandler would call common graces. Common graces. Things that God has provided for us, blessed us with, that, are, that are become wells that people drink from to be satisfied. Food. That's a common grace God gave us and it's a good thing. And, but but out of, out of, um, taken out of context, it's not a good thing. If you're looking to that to satisfy you, it will never satisfy you. And I'm living proof of that because I kept eating and eating and eating, you know, and I got bigger and bigger and bigger. Never satisfied. Never satisfied. What about alcohol, you know, wine? Uh, you know, that's fine you, in the right proportions for certain people. If you can handle that, great. Then ha that's fine. But don't drink your way to try and be satisfied because you're covering up. You're covering up what, what the real issue is. 
Sex is the same way. God gave that to us. We should never be, oh, we don't talk about that in church. God gave us that, man, and it's an awesome thing. But if it's not done in the right order, if it's not done in the right way, then it becomes an abomination to the Lord. If you're not married, that's wrong. If you're pursuing that and it becomes your God and you're, it's in control of you, that's wrong. That's a well that you're trying to satisfy yourself from and God says it won't do it. Common graces. People drink those. Those are, the, those are three. The fourth one is what we're talking about right now, religion. If only I could go to church enough or if, I, if only I could serve enough or if I could give enough or if I could do this for the Lord enough, whatever external religious activity, if I could do that enough for God, then I would finally be satisfied. And you know what? No, you won't. You'll get angry with God. You'll become incredibly burnt out. You'll be weary and you'll blame God for it. And the devil uses that one all the time on people. Oh yeah, get, get involved and pushes people into all these religious activities because they think that that's how they're going to satisfy their Lord. There's one satisfaction. It's Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the only way to satisfy and appease God. And you find relationship through Him. Don't drink of the well. If you're drinking of the well this morning from any of those wells, listen, hear what Jesus is saying. Come to me and drink. Come to me and drink. Well, not only does Jesus give us a, pro a promise of quenching our spiritual thirst if we would come to him and drink but, and end that drought, but he would also promise us that we would, um, we would experience an outpouring of rivers, plural, of living water. Check it out in verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The, the first thing we notice here is the, the means by which we drink. It's by believing. It's by faith. It's by believing in God through faith that His Son was crucified on a cross, that He rose again from the dead for you personally. That's, that's how you drink of the Lord, to believe in Him, to make Him your everything, to be satisfied in Him and Him alone. You know, it's interesting because this celebration, the Feast of the Tabernacles, with the living water, with the pouring out on the rock, that water-wine mixture would be a picture of what God had done, right? Because how did God provide water for the children of Israel in the wilderness? It would be through a rock, right? But how would the water come out of that rock again? Help me understand. Moses would strike it once. He was supposed to strike the rock once because it was an illustration. But he struck it twice. And because he struck it twice, he didn't get to enter the, the promised land. The Lord told Moses, strike the rock once, speak to the rock the second time. Speak to him. Don't strike him. Strike the rock. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses, um, verse 4, that the, from, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. That rock followed the children of Israel through the wilderness was representative of Jesus Christ. That would be struck one time and living water would gush through that stricken rock. Listen, our faith has to be in a once stricken, risen Savior. That's what we have to do to believe. To drink of the Lord is to believe in the once stricken, risen Savior. 
check this out. Not only is that a beautiful illustration of the rock being stricken once, but check this out also. I said that twice in a row. Check this out. It must be important. But when Jesus was crucified on the cross, remember that they took that spear and they thrust it up through his side. And what came bursting out of his side? A water, water blood mixture that would burst out the side of him as he was struck. It's the picture of that watery wine that would be poured out. Jesus would be poured out that day for you and for me. And we, we believe in him and believing in him is to drink the drink that he gives. So what's the result of believing? Well, the Bible tells us that we get the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We get the Spirit in us. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. When we come to the Lord and believe in Jesus and drink that drink, we get the Holy Spirit inside of us. He resides in us. He's not in you until you do that. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 tells us it's our sealing. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Can you go to heaven without the Holy Spirit in your heart? No, because you're not in Christ then. The Bible says if you're in Christ, you're sealed with the Spirit. That's a beautiful picture of what they would do in, in the olden days where they would take the, um, the, the wax and they would put it on a letter or, or whatever, a document or whatever, and they would take their signet ring and they would impress their unique symbol upon that and they would know that that was from the king or whoever it was from. God has put his signet ring imprint on you through the Spirit and that's how uh, we know and that he knows that we belong to him it's because we have the Spirit in us. We've been sealed when, when we believe is what it said. When we believe, we receive the indwelling Holy Spirit. And not only that, but we get the outpouring of the Spirit of wealth. That's what Jesus said here. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, not self-generated living water. Living water as a result of the living water that's already living in us, the Holy Spirit. Listen, we were never ever meant to be a stagnant pond for the Holy Spirit. Did you catch the word there that we are meant to, it, we, the living water is supposed to flow. It's supposed to flow out of us. It means that it's moving through us in, in great volume, by the way, in rivers. Not just a river, not a little stream, not a creek, rivers of living water. If you've ever seen, um, you know, a runoff of a mountain and you watch rivers flow, they are it's, it's fast and it's dangerous. Look out of the way when the Holy Spirit starts to flow. Look out. Because He's going to do a work that no man can do. We were promised that in Psalm chapter 78, verse 16. Listen to this. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. This is saying that God would take our lives and through the rock, Jesus Christ, we would become streams that rivers could flow down. The problem is that some of us have beavers in our lives. You know what beavers do, right? They stop the flow. They stop the flow. What, what's a beaver? It's sin. It's sin. Some of us have 
beavers in our lives. All of us have beavers in our lives. But some of us have unrepentance, unrepentant sin in our lives, which is a beaver. And it's damming up the flow of the Holy Spirit because you can't live in sin and expect the blessing of the Holy Spirit to flow through you. You quench the Spirit. He, he, he stops working when we don't repent and we become a vessel for honor. When we're a vessel for dishonor, we block the flow of the Holy Spirit working through us. Some of us have beavers today and we need to just repent. That's the way to turn that all around is repentance. For believers, we're already saved. We're not judged by our sin. God has already taken care of that on the cross. We don't, we don't have any condemnation as a result of our sin, but we do have problems with the flow. We do have a relational break with God when we have sin in our lives and He's saying you need to turn from that sin and you need to turn to me just like you did in salvation. See, you got to turn to me. You still got to come to me the same way. You got to repent. You got to get rid of that stuff because it's inhibiting the, the working of the Spirit in your life. Some of you are, have a logjam of sin in your lives and you're living off your past memories of the outpourings of the Spirit. Oh, remember when God did this? Remember when God did that? And God's saying, yeah, but I could do so much through you now. If you just repent of that stuff, I could clear all that out and I could, you could say, man, yesterday, today, God did this. And tomorrow, you can count on Him doing something else because He's flowing. We got to let it flow, man. We got to let Him flow. Now, Jesus goes on here in verse 39, or Paul, or, I'm sorry, John goes on to tell us, now this is he, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were not, who had not received, as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. As I had already mentioned, when we come and drink by faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we receive the Spirit of God. Literally, God comes inside of us. He takes residence up in our hearts. There are three relationships with the Holy Spirit that people have in the world. We've talked about this before. Um, John chapter 14, verses 16 through 17 contains two of them. Uh, Jesus speaking said, And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever. That's, that's to abide. That word with means to abide. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows him you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you those are two separate relationships with the holy spirit everybody in the world has the with relationship with the holy spirit the para experience is para the word uh, in the greek for with the para experience the with experience what does that mean well that's meaning that the holy spirit is at work in the world drawing people to god that is the only experience that a believer, unbeliever will have with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit drawing men to God. That with experience. And I can tell you, as an unbeliever, looking back in my life, in those unbelieving days, I can see the Spirit of God in my life. Where I would pray things and I would ask God and, and I knew the Spirit was with me. I know that now. Beforehand, I just thought it was coincidence that when I would pray, that when God would navigate, there's times you know, as it, all of you could um, no doubt tell about, you shouldn't be here today because of the things that you did because you weren't su super smart. But uh, you know the decisions that you made, 
But here's the thing. The Holy Spirit was with you. And He was drawing you and guiding you and pulling you to the Lord. He was trying to open your eyes to the Lord. That is the first experience. Everybody experiences the with experience of the Holy Spirit. The para experience. But look at the end of that verse. And, uh, and will be in you. That's In the Greek, that word in is en, en. The N experience of the Holy Spirit. That means He comes and resides with you like we just talked about. Ephesians chapter 1, the sealing of the Holy Spirit. That's, this, that's the, the first relationship that the believer has with the Holy Spirit is the in experience where He comes and takes up residence in your life. But there's a third experience that the church, uh, that those who believe in Jesus Christ have, and it's the epi experience, the upon experience. Acts chapter 1 verses 8. Verse 8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus said you will receive power. When? When the Holy Spirit comes upon. That is the epi experience in the Greek and it's for the purpose of being a witness. It's for the purpose of being a witness. And he says, as of yet, it tells us, he had not been given. The Holy Spirit had not been given. That doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit wasn't at work. Because even in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon people. He empowered the Old Testament saints. He also was with them. But the difference is, John is making a distinction here that the Holy Spirit was not yet in us. That's what he's saying here. He's telling us, you know, from his standpoint, that the Holy Spirit at that point in time, when Jesus spoke at that feast, that he wasn't inside of us. He would come inside of them. After he died and he rose again from the dead, John chapter 20, verse 22, Jesus went into a room where they were standing. All the disciples were shaking in their boots that, at that point in time. And Jesus popped through the wall. He's like, guys, what's up? They're like, whoa, it's Jesus. And he breathed upon them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit. Um, that was the an experience that they had. And then Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus told them to go and wait. And power would come upon them, the upon experience of the Holy Spirit. We can have all of those relationships with the Holy Spirit today. And we have all of those. Listen, when you start to witness to somebody, oftentimes you, the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you start saying stuff, you're like, whoa, where'd that come from? You know, I probably read that like five years ago, but somehow my, my mouth just said something that my mind wasn't necessarily even thinking about in that moment. The Holy Spirit comes upon us and gives us incredible um, uh, memory and gives us, you know, capabilities to do things for what? For the purpose of being a witness. For the purpose of being a witness, not for the purpose of glorifying man. Never for the purpose. The eyes should never be on us, that we should just be mirrors that reflect all the glory to him. Three different relationships. Uh, John was saying that the Holy Spirit had not yet come in them, but that's what he's talking about. He's talking about this living water where rivers would flow through you, but we've got to continue to repent and allow the Lord to work in our life in that way. Look at verse 40. All of a sudden, there arises some divisions. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this is really the prophet. This, others said, this is the Christ. Some said, is the Christ out of Galilee? And there becomes doubt in their minds about this. Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And it says, so there was a division among the people over him. Some wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. 
There were those there that believed that Jesus was the prophet spoken of by Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, you can look it up later. Moses says that God is going to send a prophet like him. He's going to send a man like him. And then there was also the prophecy given that, that God would send a Messiah. Listen, during this time, many of these people believed that those were two different people. Like the prophet and the Messiah were two different people. Little did they know that they were one. And it was fulfilled through Jesus Christ. See, some of them were saying, well, I think he's the prophet. Others were saying, no, I think he's the Messiah. The things that he's doing and the things that he's saying sure seem very Messiah-like. And yet, here comes the doubt very quickly. Others, you know, reject that both idea, the idea that he's the Christ anyway, because <coughs> the Christ won't come from Galilee. He has to be an offspring of David. A quick genealogy search of Jesus right here would have known that he was an offspring of David. He was truly an offspring of David. Both Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, was a descendant of David, and Mary, his biological mom, was a descendant of David. Jesus had the bloodline of David through both sides. Now, his dad wasn't his real dad, but through the biological mother, <clears throat> his dad wasn't his real dad, dad Joseph was not his real dad. Um, his dad was his real dad, though. But Joseph was not his real dad, but he received the, the, the throne right through Joseph's lineage, okay? Because he was his firstborn son. And then, through Mary, Jesus received the bloodline of David. He had... And you can look those genealogies up in um, Matthew and Luke. They tell us the different genealogies of Jesus on both sides of the family there. But also, so if they looked that up, they would have found that out very quickly. Well, let's solve the other issue. Wasn't he supposed to be born in Bethlehem? Of course he was, and that's where he was born. If they would have just looked it up quickly, they could have seen that by the census. Listen, this was recorded. There was a census given. They had recorded this. Jesus was born in Bethlehem during the sent. That was the whole point of them going back there. Totally the Lord ordained. If they would have looked into this, they would have seen that very clearly. Okay? So, um, he goes on there, and many of, them wanted to, uh, many of them wanted to arrest Jesus, but it wasn't his time. Just goes to show us that the Lord's timing is perfect. And again, no one can trump that. There were people that wanted to arrest him. There were guards there waiting to arrest him. And we'll find out, you know, they create a division within the religious leaders. Look at verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you uh, not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke to like this man. The officers that, had, that were sent to arrest Jesus couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. Not because Jesus used his Jedi mind tricks. These are not the droids you're looking for. You know, no, that's not what happened. Jesus continued to speak truth. And they were mesmerized by what he was saying. Whoa, I've never... These were the temple guards. These guys had heard all of the religious leaders speak, no doubt. They had never heard a man speak like this. They were blown away at the truth that Jesus was speaking. He was speaking in such powerful ways that they couldn't arrest Him. And look at the response of the Pharisees. They say, 
Have you also been deceived? Are you crazy? Don't come in here with that kind of talk. The arrogance of the religious leaders. Now, this is what happens with um, people that have a lot of letters behind their name. Is they start to become arrogant like they, they know everything. Like this couldn't possibly, like a common person couldn't possibly know something that they don't know. You ever met somebody like that? Where they're like, well, I'm a PhD in, you know, psychology. But we're talking about mechanics. What does that have to do with anything? I don't, who cares what you have a PhD in? Apples and oranges. They happen to be talking about Jesus being the Messiah. We're the experts on the law. Have we believed, they said? Look at us. Do we, we're not deceived. You're deceived. Because the people, the common people, dude, they totally diss the people right here, by the way. He, they, in short, they say they're, they're stupid. Hey, by the way, they don't know the law. They're easily deceived. In fact, look at us. We deceive them all the time. We add all kinds of laws and they just follow them blindly. Oh, wait, I, I didn't mean that. But these, uh, these religious authorities say the crowd does not know the law and they're cursed, man. They're being led astray. When truth is presented, in spite of what you think you know, examine it. Be a Berean. When Paul walked into the, went to the Berean town and he began to speak about this Jesus that the, that the gospel talks about, this, this, uh, the Old Testament would, would uh, prophesy about, he said, just check in the word, and they did. And they found out that he really was everything that he said he was. Listen, there's going to be things that are going to come across your plate. Truths that you think you know. And you're going to be challenged. And you know what? Don't turn a blind's eye. If truth is presented to you, consider what's being said. Don't be tossed to and fro from every wind of doctrine. But listen to me. When God starts to speak in your life, it's happened to me many, many times. And I'm not embarrassed to say that. Because... Far be it for me to think that I know everything. I do not. Not even close. Listen, we're students. We have a teacher. And the teacher's trying to sometimes undo some of the things that have been done in your minds doctrinally because you've been, you, know, you grew up or you heard something and you just received this truth. You don't even know where it came from. But you're like, yeah, God helps those who help themselves. Everybody knows that. What? It's not even in the Bible. That's the complete opposite of the gospel. You know what I'm saying? So when, when, when somebody challenges you on something, take a listen. Ask the Holy Spirit. Look in the Word, man. These guys didn't even bother. Just their arrogance. Oh, we're the experts in the law. And, and so Nicodemus pops in here. here. Here creates the division. Nicodemus goes before them and he says, listen, guys, does speaking of the law, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and a learning? He, he rebukes these guys. He kind of makes a soft stand for Jesus here. Hold on a second. Let's not get too quick to judge this man. We haven't even heard him. We haven't allowed him to speak before us. Why don't we take a second and listen to what he has to say? <laughs> listen to their response. Are you deceived too? Oh, Nicodemus, are you deceived too? We all know that no prophet will come out of Galilee. Wrong. Incorrect. 
You thought you knew everything, but you were incorrect. What about the prophet Jonah? Jonah was from Galilee. Hey, what about Nahum? What about Hosea? They were from Galilee. You see what happens when you start to get arrogant and you think you know everything in just a little conversation and you gloss over the truth and you say something that is incorrect. No prophet comes out of Galilee? Well, no, that's not biblical. Actually, you're incorrect in that. Three prophets came out of Galilee at least. At least. Nicodemus had taken the time to hear Jesus out. He came to him at night in John chapter 3. And he had a conversation with Jesus and he said, what must I do to inherit the kingdom? Jesus told him, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. You have to be born again. Nicodemus was confused, of course, because he's like, I don't get that language. How can I possibly go back into my mother's womb a second time? That doesn't make sense. That's just sick. What do you mean? Jesus continues in John chapter 3, verse 5 through 8. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water, physical birth, and the spirit, spiritual birth, born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God that which is born of the flesh is the flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sounds, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The cry from Jesus hasn't changed, folks. Come and drink. He told Nicodemus that night, you just got to drink, Nicodemus. You, you have to believe in me. And in believing in me, you'll be born again. It's the only way to heaven. It's the only way to get there. And he tells him, all you have to do is, is believe. And that's Jesus' cry to these people in this moment. The very last time that he would stand before this, this crowd in a feast as a free man. The next time he would be there it would be the Passover. And he would stand there as the Passover lamb that would be crucified for the sins of the world. Jesus is still crying out with that same voice today and He's saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. He promises eternal satisfaction for your soul. Nobody else can promise you that. Nothing else can promise you that. Everything else is empty and a dead end. Jesus has given you the truth here. He's promising eternal satisfaction for your soul. He wants to end the drought in your life and He wants to cause a deluge in your heart. All you have to do is come and drink. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word this morning. And the fact that You have called us to come. Anyone that would desire has the opportunity to come to You today. And You will come in. You will forgive them of their sin, Lord. And You will flow through them, through Your Spirit. God, for many in this room today, that has already happened. For many of us in this room today, we have already come and drank. And I pray that there is a flowing of Your Spirit in us, through us, into the world around us, Lord. And if we're here this morning and we're a believer and we're not experiencing that flowing, Lord, that You would just help us to repent. Help us to ask You this morning, Lord, is there anything in my heart that's hindering you to flow through me? Is there any sin in my life, God, that, that is causing issue, Lord, or I haven't repented of? Would you help me to do that this morning? 
Lord, to turn to you and to turn away from my sin, to make a decision that says sin is not, will never satisfy, and I'm not going to dabble in it. I'm going to turn away from it. Father, help us to be repentant. We should be experts at that as Christians because none of us will be perfect until we're in glory. So for my brothers and sisters here tonight, Lord, this morning that are in relationship with you, you would help us to take a hard look at our lives and our hearts. If there's anything in our lives that doesn't match your word, there's unrepentance in our hearts. Lord, to help us to turn to you today. Reveal it by your spirit, Father. And for those here that don't know you, God, that they can receive you in a moment just to invite you into their life. You're knocking on the hearts of all men and you're asking, can I come in? I can satisfy the thirst that you have. I can satisfy your soul. I can take away your sin. But it does require one thing, you giving me your life. To believe upon me, to have faith in me, that I'm sufficient for you, that I can take away your sin, that I did rise again from the dead and gave you victory over sin and death. Lord, if there's anyone in this place today that needs that relationship with you, that you would call them even now. That you would help them to just reach out to you and just pray a simple prayer. Father, I recognize this morning that I am a sinner. And I recognize that that has created a gap between you and I. And I want to be in relationship with you. I'm turning away from my sin this morning and I'm turning to Jesus. The one whom you sent to be my Savior. I believe that he died on the cross and I believe that he rose again from the dead. And I'm putting all my faith in that. I'm recognizing that I can't do anything in this moment but trust Jesus and what he's done. And so I'm signing the deed of my life over to you right now, God. Make me a Christian. Forgive me of my sin. And then keep me, Lord, on the path that would lead to, to life and on the path that would lead to righteousness, God. It's in Jesus' name I pray. And if you prayed that prayer with sincerity in your heart, the word says that you are saved and that Jesus has come to reside inside of you. For the rest of us here today, Lord, if there's some lacking of the spirit we're going to ask that you would just come and quench whatever thirst that we might have through this last song so would you just help us to look to you now in jesus name amen thanks for listening you can hear more of pastor tim's studies through the word of god on our website www.calvaryofcolumbia.org thanks again for listening and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study god's word